Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, we are ready for Acts uh, 23. We'll actually start at the very end of Acts 22. And Paul has been arrested in the temple and he is about to actually stand before a trial and not, not just a mob, as we've seen in the last couple of chapters. Yeah, but, that's mm-hmm. right. And of course, this is all leading back into chapter 21 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, where they accuse Paul of having brought a Gentile into the temple um, and into the temple complex. Uh, that was, of course, what this was all about. Um, and so Paul will be on on trial before not only the Jews, but also the Roman rulers of the day as well, much like what we saw Jesus go through in season one in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's going to be tried before the Jews and then handed off to Pilate. And Paul is going to kind of face a similar runaround as far as he's handed off from the Jews, and that's not going to go well, and then off to the Gentiles. What's interesting, though, is um, back in Acts chapter 9, in Paul's conversion, Jesus told him uh, that you're going to— actually, he tells Ananias— to tell Paul, <laughs> um, you're going to bear my name for the Jews, but also before Gentiles and kings. And all of this is coming to fruition in these chapters as he stands before ruler after ruler and will have opportunity to share the gospel and his story with these people in high places. Yep, that's right. So let's go ahead and pick back up. Last week we ended just right before the end of chapter 22. So we'll pick up in chapter 22, verse 30 and read down to verse 11 of chapter 23. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble, and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your own people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And a great dissension was developing, and the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from uh, from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must also witness at Rome." Okay, so Paul has been rescued from one mob 
and is now presented before another slightly more dignified mob, but it's going to end in a kind of similar way here. He uh, is taken the next day, again, this is just the day after his arrest in the temple, that he's brought before the chief priests and the council. And so Paul is set down in the middle, and he has an opportunity to speak. And the first thing out of his mouth is something that to them is very shocking. I mean, from their perspective, here's a guy who used to be one of us and was living right and was pursuing Christians, this dangerous sect of false religion. And then one day he just up and mid-mission has deserted to the other side. And and you know how Paul, how can you live with yourself? Look at what you've done to the cause of Judaism and the law and all of this. And of course, there have been these rumors going around Paul about Paul as he's been out doing this work among the Gentiles. And now he's standing up there and saying, "I've lived my whole life in good conscience." You know, if, if there's a criminal, if you think it's a criminal up on the stand and he says, "I've lived my whole life with a good conscience," you're going to be like. What? How, how can this man say can, something like You're that? on trial right now. You have no authority to say that. No room to speak. And so, I mean, like Stephen said, this would be a shocking thing to hear Paul say. And so the high priest, Ananias, uh, commands him to be stricken on the mouth. And so that's exactly what happens. Paul is struck on the mouth. And Paul has a bit of a short fuse about this uh, as, as it reads in verse 3. He turns back and says, well, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. What what does that mean, by the way? He's calling him a hypocrite. I mean, Jesus talked about, you know, whitewashed tombs uh, and his woes to the Pharisees in like Matthew 23. And he's saying, you are supposed to be upholding the law of Moses and giving a fair trial here. And before you've even heard any of the evidence, you're already commanding me to be punished on a small level, but nonetheless, he hasn't heard the case fully yet. And he's having Paul struck on the mouth. And so he he's concerned not just for what is happening to him, but that the high priest is violating the law of Moses by not letting the trial uh, be completed. And so that's why he has a short fuse about this and uh, is saying, you're, you're, you're breaking the law by ordering me to be struck. But then the people around are like, hey, Paul, you know, he's the high priest. Yeah, <laughs> and, right. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize he was the high priest. And it's written, and he quotes here, Exodus twenty two twenty eight, that says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And I'm not exactly sure how Paul doesn't know that he's the high priest here. That raises some interesting questions in this text. But regardless, it does seem like Paul... Again, he's just said he's lived his whole life in good conscience. I think he made this comment in good conscience saying, hey, like, you should not do that. And But then he realizes, like, oh, like, I came close to overstepping the law myself because I didn't realize he was the high priest. Mm-hmm. I, I should not have said it like that. Yeah. And, and I, I appreciate Paul's, you know, kind of pulling back and being a little more calm in this moment now that he realizes who he's talking to. Um, because there is an amount of respect that needs to go toward the authority of the day. I mean, that's what the law speaks of. And I do believe that's obviously true even now. E- even if there is a ruler of our people of today that we don't necessarily respect or like, there is still a, an amount of respect that needs to go toward that person, either in the way that we talk about them or if we ever meet them or address them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, 
Peter will write to Christians later in 1 Peter chapter 2 about being subject to every human institution, whether the emperor is supreme or to governors, which it seems like in the Jewish realm, this would include the high priest as like kind of a local ruler, not just religious, but almost political. Um, but he says in, in 1 Peter 2, 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And if I'm not mistaken, we're not exactly sure when First Peter is written, but it may well have been that Nero was the Caesar when Peter writes these words to Christians who are scattered throughout uh, modern-day Turkey. And, man, if you read anything about not just Nero, but like any of the Caesars. I like, mean, if I can spoil it a little bit, it's not in biblical history, but in secular history, history Nero is the one that has Paul beheaded. Yeah, and is using Christians to light his dinner parties, and like I mean, they're just some right. this terrible, terrible things. And and even aside from persecution, just not fine, upstanding people. Mm -hmm. Like these, these were wicked, wicked people. And yet Peter writes to Christians and says, "Honor the emperor, mm -hmm. even if the man is not acting honorably. You honor the position." And here you honor him with your words. I mean, this is what Paul has done: is he has verbally kind of attacked the high priest without realizing it. And he backs off when he realizes, oh, he's a ruler. I should not have said it like that. And again, there's times where rulers are still called out for their sinful behavior. John the Baptist tells Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Right. It doesn't mean that we can't point out flaws and sinful behavior in our rulers, but we need to be very careful with our words and our attitudes toward them that we're not just reviling or we're not just attacking uh, leaders in such a way as to not give honor to the position that God has given them. I mean, Romans 13 and other passages talk about God has a part in bringing rulers to, to where they're at. Yeah, very well said. And so Paul, he does something, I'll be honest, I, I'm not 100% sure why he does this, but in verse 6, he pins the group uh, against each other by bringing up the resurrection of the dead. And the text expounds on that a little bit in verses 7 and 8. Um yeah, and actually, just real quick, before we leave that last section, uh, this has just been interesting to me about the conscience comment, um, is that Paul has lived his whole life in good conscience. But that doesn't mean that Paul's always done what's right. And that's illustrated right in this passage that he didn't realize that this is the high priest yeah. and says something and has to back off like, oh, sorry, like I did that in good conscience, but I was wrong. But what you see in Paul is even though he's always doing what he believes to be right, He's willing to be corrected. Yeah. Just it, like persecuting Christians. Right. Did that in good conscience. But then when Jesus showed up, he totally turned his life around. Yeah. And the, the life of a Christian will always be tuning our conscience more into what God wants us to be. And he reveals that through his word. And when we learn, oh, man, I'm thinking about this in the wrong light or I need to be better about that. We don't get to just look at the Lord and say, well, Lord, this is just always the way I've looked at it. You know, right. you, you have to change your conscience. You have to, you have to tune it. Um, That's right. To be more in line with what God says. Yeah, well said. Um, but Paul, he, he brings up the resurrection of the dead with these people. And of course, this is actually something we talked about in season one in Mark chapter 12, uh, because the Pharisees, or sorry, excuse me, the Sadducees, along with the Pharisees and the Herodians, are asking Jesus a bunch of questions. And when the Sadducees finally get a run at Jesus in Mark 12, they ask him this big convoluted question about this guy who's married, uh, you know, multiple times. And they're wondering whose wife will this woman be in the day of the resurrection, right? And 
Paul, or of course Jesus is, is like, well, neither, you know, they're, they're not going to be given in marriage in, in heaven. It's going to be like angels in heaven. Uh, so anyways, there's that big convoluted question about the resurrection of the dead that the Sadducees think they're going to pin Jesus on. And Paul knows that about the Sadducees. Right. So he revisits it here. Yeah, and the Sadducees there were just trying to make belief in the resurrection look ridiculous. Right. That's a very common tactic that people will use if they don't believe in something or they want to attack a position instead of actually logically doing it. It's a kind of a straw man argument where they like build a ridiculous scenario or a hypothetical where it's like, well, what about this? And it's like, well, th- that doesn't actually prove anything. Of course, Jesus silenced them by quoting Exodus 3 and all that. But here, I mean, this is the source of the conflict between the Pharisees and Sadducees. Is In verse 8, it says, The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So it gives us a little kind of cultural background. Uh, Luke writing, saying, Hey, reader, if you're not familiar with these Jewish sects, then realize that this is the source of the controversy what's funny to me is how quickly the pharisees changed their tune here yeah. <laughs> they realize oh, he's one of us he's on our side this is our talking point and suddenly the trial is no longer about how terrible paul is and what he's done against the jews is like what if an angel or a spirit spoke to him it's all about this soapbox they're like okay now this is the issue at hand and it turns violent and i think with them striking paul before even hearing him out all the way it's kind of already communicated to paul you're spinning your tires there's nowhere i'm going to be able to get with these people let's move it along why don't i just go ahead and get to the next trial maybe i'll have some luck there and so perhaps that's why he kind of throws his monkey wrench in there to speed speed things along and get on to the next part of the trial. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, it is interesting, though, that Paul knows enough about the workings of the Jews that he used to live among, that he's like, well, I know how to derail this conversation, <laughs> and he just throws it out there. It's funny how in this section uh, there have been several kind of key words that change things around. Um, in chapter 22, you remember like they that the mob was listening to Paul defend himself up until he says the word Gentile. Gentiles. And they're like, throwing dust in the air, like, ah, oh, he doesn't deserve to live. And then they're like, okay, we're going to beat this guy and figure out what's going on. And they stretch him out, and they're about to beat him until Paul says, hey, you're going to beat a Roman? Yeah. And that one word is like, oh, wait, you're a Roman citizen? And it changes everything. And here, a third time, you've got one word. I'm on trial for the resurrection. And they're like, oh, resurrection, and they just take the bait. And it's it's really fascinating how in this little section of Acts, there's like one word that just totally changes the the conversation or the circumstance in each of these cases. Well, with as heated as it's getting in there, uh, the commander realizes it, and he, my translation at least says, you know, he's, he's afraid that Paul's going to be torn to pieces <laughs> with with what's going on, and they take Paul away, kind of got to pry him out of their hands. And they send them down into the barracks. And it's on that very night that the Lord comes, stands at the side of Paul. And he says, take courage. By the way, this is an admonition we see Jesus give his apostles when he's on the earth. Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, you must witness in Rome also. Basically, Jesus coming to him and saying, you're going to get there. Like We're, we're going to see to it that you make it to Rome so that you can witness there and... Um, tell about me there as well. Um, and so I just think that's super powerful to see the Lord giving comfort to Paul in a time where things are so uncertain. 
Yeah. And this is really similar to what happened in Corinth. Mm -hmm. If you guys remember a couple episodes ago, uh, Corinth was renowned for its sin and just being kind of a rotten place. And that's where Jesus showed up to Paul in a vision as well and said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. That was Acts 18 verses 9 and 10. And here again, take courage. As you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus gives Paul this encouragement right when he needs it. That he may be really discouraged and really frustrated. Like, man, am I going to survive this? Like, how am I going to get out of here? And um, he says, no, you're going to get to Rome. Trust me. And I mean, he's essentially promising Paul, like, you're going to be safe. You're going to be alive. And you're going to make it to Rome. That's my intent to bring you there to testify. Which brings us to the next section. Uh, things are going to ramp up here. This uh, e this encouragement from the Lord may also be because of what's about to happen. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> um, so verse 12, uh, we'll read down through verse 35. This is Acts 23, 12. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to you, uh, to bring him down to you, as though you were going to examine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them and with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but being charged with nothing, deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he had learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. 
All right, so in verse 12, going back to the beginning of this reading, it's day and the Jews are forming a conspiracy. And this isn't just like, ah, I don't like that guy. It's a, no, we're going to bound ourselves under an oath and we're not going to eat or drink anything until this guy is dead. So either he dies or we die. Yeah, exactly. Um, And it's just goes to show just how much hate they have. I mean, I I can honestly say I don't think I've ever had that much hate for somebody <laughs> to the point where I want them dead and I'm not going to eat or drink until I see to it that that happens. I mean, well, I'm, I'm glad because you'd either be dead or you'd be in prison. Yeah, exactly. exactly <laughs> yeah. But man, this, this just goes to show though just how much hate they have for Paul. And we're obviously seeing this also in the story of Jesus as well. And uh, it gets to the point in verse 14 that they come to the chief priests and the elders and they tell him, you know, we, we have bound ourselves under this oath until we've we've killed Paul. And uh, Paul ends up finding out about it, doesn't he? That's right. And I mean, it's interesting here just to note that the council is not like, oh, you can't do that. They're like, okay, cool. We'll send for Paul and uh, y'all take care of him. Like, yeah. They're, they're, there's no justice here. Just like with Jesus. It's like, we want him dead and we'll stop at nothing until uh, until he's taken care of. What's really cool, something we don't always see, I always wonder about Paul's personal life sometimes, and we, we have some details given about his life, uh, but verse 16 tells us that he has a sister, um, and Paul's sister, and it's actually his son, or her son, excuse me, so Paul's nephew hears about this ambush, and he comes and he tells Paul about it. Apparently he had access to go and see Paul, and he tells Paul, look, you know, <laughs> you're going to die, there's this plot against you, and Paul says, look, I want you to take this young man and go tell uh, exactly what he's talking about here. And yeah. so that's what happens. And I wonder how, how old this I've wondered was. the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it says that uh, he's a young man, which can be pretty broad. But it is interesting that in verse 19, uh, the tribune took him by the hand. And so I really wonder, I mean, this could have been a young boy. Like, yeah. I don't know, like 8, 9, 10 years old, something like that. I mean, we don't know. But it's fascinating to me that the courage of this boy. Yeah. And he's somehow the one who overhears. And that may be also how he was able to overhear. They figured, well, there's a kid here, but like, he's not going to do anything. But this kid could have just gotten scared and hidden this. But maybe it's the Lord and his providence helping that like he allows Paul's nephew to be there, overhear about the plot. And because if he hadn't said anything, Paul very well might have died. Um, in this circumstance. And so the Lord uses even this young boy as part of his plan to get Paul to Rome. But it takes a lot of courage for this young young man, however old he was, to speak up, to tell Paul, and then to tell this Roman official, hey, this is what's happening. And, and kudos to the tribune for believing him and yeah. being like, well, yeah, I guess that would make sense. There's been uh, yeah. a lot of there's been a lot of uh, it's, it's, violence over yeah. Paul it's, so far. It's not an empty threat. It, right. it, it would make sense, especially with all the violence that they've seen directed toward Paul at this point. Um, but man, yeah, you're right. They do take this seriously, uh, so seriously. In verse 23, it tells us that they get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea, and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. This feels like overkill. He has an army. Like yeah. that, that, he has an <laughs> army protecting him. Like this is a lot of people, um, and of course there's the letter that is written as well, and that's given to um, yeah. for his delivery. And you can you can just hear the politics. Oh, in this absolutely! Letter. I mean, it's dripping with like you know he's doing the proper honor thing, but he's like, 
yeah, you know, I rescued him. And after finding out he was a Roman citizen, it's like, well, you find that out because he was about to be beaten. And like, of course, he he omits the details that are embarrassing, includes the ones and spins it to where he looks like the hero. I, I found him to be accused over questions about their law. But under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. You know, it just very, it's kind of passing it off. Like, this this really, I've done what I need to, but this really shouldn't be my problem anymore. Well, and that's really similar to, I mean, the Roman officials with Jesus. is like, when he, he, they bring him to trial, they're like trying to figure out, okay, what what's he done? And every time there's a trial, it's like, everyone's like, well, he's not guilty. Like, what, what can we say to put him to death? He's an innocent man. That was true with Jesus, it's true with Paul, but it's not stopping the Jews from trying to kill him. And so this is how Paul escapes Jerusalem, at least. And they get him out and um, they escort him up to Caesarea, which is a little bit of a, a little bit of a journey up there to the coast. And so that's where Paul's going to be kept until um, uh, September 24. We'll see it's five days later that uh, he's going to get to speak here. So um, let's uh, let's read that, uh, yeah. chapter 24. And of course, they're waiting on the accusers to arrive. That's right. one, of, one of the things they're waiting on. So yeah, let's read chapter 24. We'll read verses 1 through 21. Um, 24 verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, with an attorney named Tortullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. And after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have, through you, attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along, and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than twelve days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I do admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified, without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia, who ought to have been present before you, and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. 
other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. All right. So Paul finally has a little bit of a calmer audience to make a defense before. And so he comes before um, this guy named Felix. I always have a hard time in this part of Acts keeping the different uh, rulers straight. Felix and then Festus. Right. So they both start with F. It gets confusing. So he's before Felix. And uh, first, his accusers come. And is going to tell us who's going to kind of lead the opposition. And um, he again does the pleasantries before Felix. And then says, listen, we found this man a plague. Uh, I think you said a, a pest. A real, he's a real pest. <laughs> a real pest. Is, is how my translation says it. Yeah. Are and so they present him as one who is instigating riots among the Jews throughout the world. Which again, there have been riots in lots of places. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't been because Paul is stirring them up. It's been the Jews who have been stirring them up because of jealousy and various things. Yeah, absolutely. And they... they, they Present him as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Yeah, that's interesting. Kind of interesting. Is that the first time that we've seen kind of that word Nazarene, I think, so far in the book of Acts? Normally, it's tied to, of course, Jesus of Nazareth, um, which is the connection we're, we're trying to make right now. But it's really cool that Paul is now seen as a leader, a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. Um, and I do think, that, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying it that way. I mean, Paul certainly was a leader amongst amongst the, the Christians and uh, was certainly... Uh, a ringleader. I don't think that I have any problem saying that. But of course, then their accusations come in in verses six through eight um, about him trying to desecrate the temple. And that's why we arrested him, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, this is really interesting that uh, Nazarene has not come up a whole lot. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth. Right. Of course, a Nazarene is someone who is from Nazareth. But I don't think it's ever been said like this that. Uh, like this whole thing is a, a Nazareth production or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that is interesting. So they basically say, you know, he tried to profane the temple. Uh, again, this comes back to how Paul was arrested. And you, you examine him. You'll, you'll find out this is all true. And so Paul gets the opportunity. And uh, Paul says, listen, I know you've been a uh, judge for many years. Uh, I cheerfully make my defense. And... First of all, I have not done anything as far as stirring up riots. This is not me. I've never done that. They yeah. can't prove any of this that not, they're bringing up. I love how you said, not in the temple, not in the synagogues, not in the city. Right. <laughs> Nowhere have I have I done this. I'm not a troublemaker. I'm not a real pest, as you say. Yeah. <laughs> Although there have been riots in all three of those places. <laughs> yeah. There have not been because of anything I have done. That's right. But then he gets the opportunity to speak to him about what he is doing. Yep. I'm not stirring up riots, but I am preaching about the way. Again, this comes up uh, several times in the book of Acts to referring to the followers of Jesus that call themselves the way. It's kind of a cool designation. And he says, I am, uh, which they call a sect. He goes, I am, I am a part of a sect of a place and I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is in, it is written in the prophets. What Paul is doing here, he is establishing some common ground here. Mm-hmm. You know, these same Jews who are accusing me, we actually have common ground with each other. We have the same prophets. We have the same fathers. We have the same law. And I'm doing things that are in accordance with that. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so, and he, he's able to bring up the resurrection here, uh, 
without a riot. <laughs> so he's hit because of course the Gentiles is not as a yeah, big thing. No Sadducees here. <laughs> right. And so I think verse 16 is really fascinating. Um, as he's presented his life in Judaism, uh, his uh, connection there, he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience before, toward both God and man. And that goes with what Paul said in this previous trial before the council. I really work hard to have a clear conscience, first before God, but also before other people. I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm not trying to stir up trouble. I'm trying to have a clear conscience uh, toward everybody. And so um, he explains what happened in the temple. You know, I was there. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was purified. I wasn't defiling the temple. And he mentions that, I mean, there are some accusers who've come, but the Jews from Asia that started this whole mess by, you know, starting the riot on the temple. He's like, they should be here to make their accusation if they have anything against me. Um, he says, the only thing that I, that they could get me on is all I said is it's respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. And that's what caused them to stir all this up. Mm -hmm. And so Paul, I don't know if he's quite finished here. Uh, this is at least a summary of what he said. Right. And I mean, he makes it clear too. at the end of verse 18, there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make the, this accusation. He's like, by the way, these people who are accusing me, they're not even here. Like they're supposed to be here to stand before me and accuse me, but they're not even here to begin with. Um, but yeah, may, maybe Paul was cut short. I don't know. But uh, Felix is going to have, uh, you know, something to say here. Well, at least um, he'll cut him short as it is. And uh, we can go ahead and, and read that as well. Yeah. So it says, uh, but Felix, this is Acts 24, 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Okay, so Felix, of course, is definitely just passing Paul off down the road here. You know, well, when Lysias, the commander, that's guy that was mentioned back in verses, uh, verse 7, you know, when he gets here, then I'll decide your case. I'll be able to figure out more so from a Roman's perspective on what happened. And he is somewhat kind to Paul in that in verse 23. He lets him, you know, stay in this maybe house arrest might not be the exact right word, but he is kept in custody with some freedom to the point that even his friends were able to come and it says minister to him or take care of him, serve him and that kind of thing. And we also see that Paul gets an opportunity to talk to Felix as well as, as, well as his wife, Drusilla, about the gospel and about faith in Christ Jesus. Yeah. There were three things in particular that he was discussing with them. And I find this list very fascinating, don't you? Mm -hmm. The fact that he says in verse 25, he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. Yeah, 
three really big tenets of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I would put them quite as succinctly as that, as Paul did. I think that's super cool. Yeah, I, I'm very curious to have heard the rest of the sermon, although right. it probably ties in with some of the other sermons he's right. already preached. Now, he's preaching before a Gentile ruler now, but he says, listen, like, righteousness is what God expects. It's also what God provides right. through yes. Jesus, justification, uh, becoming righteous by faith. But self-control, self-discipline is a big part of living as a Christian. And it's all leading up to the final judgment. Jesus is coming back. Uh, he has shown proof. I, I think about Paul's sermon on Mars Hill ended with that idea of, you know, he's furnished proof that he's going to judge the world by a man. And he's shown evidence by raising him from the dead. And so Felix is alarmed by this. And what's interesting is like he he's like, whoa, like there's something to this. But he's like, I'll, I'll listen to you later. You know, he, he just keeps kicking the can down the road. And he's not going to make a decision in probably large part because he's hoping that by keeping Paul in prison for long enough, eventually he or maybe his friends will get enough to pay him some money. He would like a bribe to let Paul out of prison. It is interesting. My, my translation says after he heard about these three things, Felix became frightened. The NIV says he was afraid. And when you're somebody that's in a position of authority and rulership like he is, think about just how much is at his disposal. Think about just how much power he has. But with what Paul is preaching, there's a higher power. There is someone greater than even Felix that is going to judge him one day and is going to hold him accountable for the things that he's done. And I I wonder if that's really kind of the thing that scared Felix here. Um, was this idea that there is a greater and higher power that is going to judge him for what he's done. There might not be anybody on this earth that can catch him here, but there is someone who can catch catch him in the end, and that's God. Mm, Uh, That's that's just interesting to think about here. That might be the thing that that frightens him. Yeah. And, man, it's so easy for us to read past verse 27 and just, like, keep reading, but two years that this goes on. He, he, He listens to him frequently but is never acting on it. And he wishes to do the Jews a favor. This reminds me of Pilate. Again, wanting to do the Jews a favor, he releases Barabbas for them, but keeps Jesus in custody and delivers him to be crucified. And Paul, again, the the, the miscarriage of justice over and over and over is almost a theme in here, uh, in the book of Acts, in the book of Luke, uh, just seeing that the, the kingdoms of men are not doing the justice that they're supposed to be doing according to God. And Paul... Again, two years is a long time to be kind of stuck there. Now, his friends are able to help him out. Apparently, in those days, like if you were in prison, you relied on people bringing you food and other things that you needed. And you'll see that later, like when it, in some of his prison letters, you'll mm-hmm. say, like, hey, so-and-so is with me. Tell so-and-so to bring these things. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting thinking about all that Paul is going through for the sake of the gospel and that he'll use his time as productively as he can, but two years is a long time. Yep. And uh, we'll see kind of the continuing of the kicking the can down the road in the coming chapters. Yeah, yeah. so Lord willing, in our next podcast, we'll get into chapter 25, where this guy named Festus that we were just introduced to uh, will finally have a conversation with Paul, and we'll, Lord willing, get to look at that in the next podcast. If you're enjoying uh, what you're hearing on this podcast, we would love it if you would subscribe, uh, leave us a rating or a review, and we would really love to hear from you. Um, If you would like to study with us like we're doing here or if you have other Bible questions, please reach out to us, 717-585-0949 or capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. 
or for more information about what we're doing here in Harrisburg, capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.